So I'd like you to imagine that you're going out on the streets of Oxford and as you do so, you're going to stop various people for a chat and you're going to ask them the question, how do you consider yourself before God? I imagine there'd be quite a range of responses to that question. Perhaps some would say something like, well, I'm a pretty good person. I imagine God would approve of me. Perhaps others would say something like, oh, I can never come to God, not after the things that I've done. If you were to ask people, suppose they were a God, do you think he would let you into his kingdom? Some would say, yeah, of course he'd let me in. Others might say, well, I've tried hard, I hope so. I can never be sure. I expect there'd be a range of different responses. And we're going to consider these questions as we look at this passage today. And we're going to think about what God says about these questions. Now, if you've been following our series in Mark so far, you'll know that we've been asking three questions of Mark's Gospel. Firstly, we've been asking, who is Jesus? Secondly, why did he come? And thirdly, what does it mean to follow him? So who is Jesus? Why did he come? What does it mean to follow him? And we've seen answers to these questions so far. Who is Jesus? Well, Mark has shown us that he is God's appointed king with all authority. He has authority over sickness, over death, over evil, over nature. And he has authority to forgive sins as well. He said to the paralysed man, son, your sins are forgiven. And then he demonstrated he could do that by raising him physically from his mat. So why has Jesus come? Well, he's come to forgive sins and to welcome sinners into his kingdom. He's predicted that he would come to be rejected and to die and then to rise again. And all throughout the gospel, he's been opposed. So the disciples misunderstand him. The religious leaders want to arrest him. All throughout the book, mankind opposes Jesus. And we've seen that the reason for this is to do with the state of our hearts. In chapter 7, we saw that the human heart rejects God's word and it defiles us before God. And what does it mean to follow Jesus? Well, following him looks like turning away from our self-centred attitudes and believing the gospel that he proclaims and humbly depending on him alone for forgiveness. And more recently, we've spent the last few weeks in chapter 11. And in this chapter, we've seen that the king has come to his temple. And here in the temple, he's been opposed by the religious leaders. And he's pronounced a judgment on the temple for the way that it wasn't fulfilling its purpose. Just like the fig tree that Jesus saw, which wasn't bearing any fruit, it was just leafy, that he pronounced a judgment on it for not being fruitful. So likewise, he pronounced judgment on the temple for its fruitlessness, just like the fig tree. So in this passage, we're going to zoom in on some of these things. We're going to zoom in on the leafy fruitlessness, if you like, of the temple. We're going to zoom in on the opposition between (coughs) Jesus and the religious leaders. And as we do so, we'll discover more about why Jesus has come. So two things we're looking at this evening. First of all, the nature of the human heart. And then secondly, what God does about it. So first of all, the nature of the human heart. This parable is a parable all about God and his people Israel. And the main subject is God. It begins and ends with him. He's the main character. So in verse 1, he planted the vineyard. He put a wall around it. He dug a pit for the winepress, built a watchtower, rented out the vineyard, and he sent his servants to the tenants of the vineyard. So God is the one who initiates, who builds, who gives. He's provided so much. And yet, what do God's people do with all that he's provided? Well, the first action of the tenants comes in verse 3. He sends a servant to them. Then in verse 3, 
They seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He sent, sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others, some they beat, others they killed. So these tenants shake their fists at the owner of the vineyard. They don't give him what's due to him, but they want to keep it for themselves. They insult the owner by treating his servant shamefully. And this opposition heightens even more in verse 6 with the introduction of a new character into the story because we meet the son of the vineyard owner. And it's clear that this son is unique. We're told that this is the son whom he loved in verse 6. And this is also the first time in the parable where there is speech. Our ears are meant to prick up to hear the owner of the vineyard say, they will respect my son. So there is a clear focus on Jesus' uniqueness and his authority as the son of the owner of the vineyard. So how do the tenants respond to this new development? Well, just as the owner spoke, so now the tenants speak, and their first speech comes in verse 7. This really is the height of their opposition against him. Verse 7, the tenants said to one another, this is the heir, come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him, and threw him out of the vineyard. They want the full vineyard for themselves, so they kill the son, thinking that what was due to him as an inheritance will now be theirs to keep. So this now is not just opposition against the vineyard owner. This is full-scale revolution against him. They want what is rightfully his for themselves. They gather together against the son and say, come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So this is a shocking story of opposition and revolution. And it's not lost on the religious leaders. In verse 12, they knew that he had spoken the parable against them. And why did, he know, why did they know this? Well, it's because this, this parable is, is dripping richly with Old Testament imagery about the nation of Israel, about particularly the leaders of Israel. And so, to properly understand this parable, we need to delve into the Old Testament, into the scriptures which these religious elders knew so well. So stick a finger or something in Mark, and we're going to flick back to Isaiah chapter 5. This is on page 690, if you've got a church Bible. Isaiah chapter 5, page 690. So I'm going to read from verse 1. Isaiah 5. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a winepress as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and people of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for it to yield good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Picking up again in verse 7. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the nation of Israel, and the people of Judah are the vines he delighted in. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, (coughs) for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So the elders knew that Jesus has spoken this parable against them, because the vineyard is God's people, the people of Israel. So God has provided so much for them. 
He's planted them as his people. He's given them a watchtower for security, a wall for protection, <coughs> uh, choice vines and a winepress for the enjoyment of good wine. This is a vineyard with everything you could possibly need. Like a beautiful French vineyard yielding the finest red wine, the finest Cabernet Sauvignon or something like that. I went on holiday in southwest France a few years ago with some school friends and we went to visit a vineyard. And it was stunning, there were row upon row of neat hedges, each producing rich clusters of big red grapes. So God has provided so much for his people. Verse 4, what more could, could have been done for my vineyard than I have done for it? And he looked his vineyard to bear fruit, as a vineyard should. And yet, how have the leaders of God's people responded to his provision? What have they done with their God-given responsibility? Verse 2, he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Verse 7, he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Now, going back to Mark, we've seen in the last couple of weeks how the temple was fruitless. It was supposed to declare God's glory and his goodness to the nations. That was the fruit it was supposed to bear. But instead, they turned it into a marketplace full of people buying and selling. They'd taken what was rightfully for God's glory and used it for their own glory, for their own material gain. So it's worth pressing pause here to consider in what ways are we like these tenants? Now this parable was spoken primarily to the leaders of Israel, but the New Testament consistently says that followers of Jesus are a people for God's own possession that we may proclaim his praises. So although we're not the primary audience of this story, we're nonetheless meant to see ourselves in the tenants. So if you are a follower of Jesus, it's worth asking yourself, does my Christian life give the glory to God that is due to him, or does it want to keep the glory for myself? Do I give the glory to God that is due to him, or do I keep it for myself? And there is a stark warning for us here, because not giving to God the glory that is due to him is deeply serious, and it opposes him. But perhaps you wouldn't describe yourself as a follower of Jesus. And if that's the case, I say you're warmly welcome. It's great to have you with us considering these things. And I hope you can see the, the warning that Jesus has for you about enjoying the good things that God provides and yet keeping God himself at arm's length, denying him his rightful authority. So Mark here is expanding the picture of sin that he's shown us so far. We see here that sin is not giving God his due. Sin is not giving God his due. And more so, sin is denying God his rightful authority and rejecting his son. The tenants in conspiring against the son, they're, they're really saying, the owner of the vineyard has no authority over us. He has no authority over this vineyard, but we are free to do what we want. So we see here again that man-centred religion is fruitless, leafy and superficial, and it rejects God. So... Sin denies God his authority. In sinning, I, I don't give God his due, but I keep his glory for myself. And sin conspires against Jesus, God's son, and his appointed king. Now, the late theologian John Stott, in his book, The Cross of Christ, he says this. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? The question is asked. And we must answer, yes, we were there. Not as spectators only, but as participants, guilty participants, plotting, scheming, betraying, bargaining and handing him over to be crucified. 
We may try to wash our hands of responsibility like Pontius Pilate, but our attempt will be as futile as his, for there is blood on our hands. Before we can begin to see the cross as something done for us, leading us to faith and worship, we have to see it as something done by us, leading us to repentance. Indeed, only the man who is prepared to own his share in the guilt of the cross, wrote Canon Peter Green, may claim his share in its grace. So Jesus uses this parable to show us the sinfulness of humanity. But there's more to the story, because what will God do about the way in which he is treated? And this brings us on to our second point, what God does about the nature of the human heart. Well, first of all, it's clear that God is extraordinarily patient. After his first servant has been beaten, in his kindness, the owner of the vineyards doesn't destroy the tenants immediately, but he sends another servant, and then another one. These are the prophets of the Old Testament, sent to Israel, and God doesn't destroy the tenants immediately, but he keeps communicating himself to them again and again. In his extreme generosity and his commitment to, to revealing himself is shown ultimately when he sends his own beloved son to them. So God is extraordinarily patient. But God will act. Just as it would be unthinkable for this vineyard owner to let the tenants get away with how they're treating him, so it would be unthinkable for God to do nothing about the way in which his people deny him what is rightfully his. After all, what would you think about a God who did nothing about injustice? Isaiah chapter 5 again. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed. For righteousness, but heard cries of distress. So picking up the story in verse 9. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. It's an ironic play on words here. Just as the tenants in their revolution against the owner said, come, let's kill the son. So now the owner of the vineyard, in his judgment on them, he will come and kill those tenants. So we see here a picture of the chief priests and the elders of Israel in their opposition to Jesus. And we see God's judgment on them. And this dual opposition, Israel against God and God's judgment on Israel, this is a theme that's cropped up again and again in Mark. In fact, immediately before this, they've challenged Jesus' authority. So if we just look across the page to chapter 11, verse 27. The chief priests, the teachers of the law and the elders came to Jesus and they asked him, by what authority are you doing these things, they asked. And who gave you authority to do this? And Jesus, Jesus responds to this by asking them a question. They come together, they discuss it, and they decide they wouldn't answer Jesus' question. They don't answer it because they don't believe in him and because they fear the crowd. So verse 33, they answer Jesus, we don't know. Jesus then says to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. So they oppose Jesus by refusing to answer his question. He then withdraws from them as a sign of his judgment on them by refusing to answer their question. It's just that actually he does answer their question, but he chooses to do so using a parable. So, verse 33, they answer Jesus, we don't know. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. Jesus then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. Now, when we're thinking about Jesus speaking in parables, 
Something you can look up later on is Mark chapter 4, verses 10 to 12. Because back in chapter 4, verse 10 to 12, we discovered why Jesus spoke in parables. He told parables not to explain something simply, but actually to conceal truth. In chapter 4, there is a quote from Isaiah, around the same part of Isaiah that this parable alludes to. And the point of that quote was to show that Israel has rejected the Lord. And part of God's judgment on them was that Isaiah would preach and they would not understand. So parables are meant to conceal truth and are a sign of Jesus' judgment. And Jesus explains to the chief priests using this parable that he does have authority to judge the temple for its fruitlessness because he is the son of the vineyard owner, God's beloved son. And in fact, this parable that we've been reading tonight is, is about Israel's opposition to Jesus, his judgment on them, and it's surrounded either side by examples of the real thing. Just after it in verse 13, they come to Jesus to catch him in his words, verse 13. They then have this conversation and their exchange finishes in verse 17 with Jesus saying, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Give to God what is due to him. So why has Jesus come? Well, Jesus has come for judgment. He's come to pronounce God's judgment on the temple, on the religious leaders of Israel. And I hope we can see that this judgment really is deserved because sin is denying God his authority, not giving God his due and opposing his son. Elsewhere in Isaiah in chapter 3 verse 14, Isaiah writes this. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people. It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. So Jesus has come for judgment. But that's not all that he says because Jesus has come for a second reason. After all, what does the owner, sorry, what does the son of the vineyard owner do in this parable? Well, he dies. He comes to the tenants, they conspire against him and they kill him. And this is a bold statement from Jesus. He says to the chief priests, you are going to kill me because you want to seal God's kingdom for yourselves. Jesus has come to be rejected and killed by Israel's rebellious leaders. And again, it's worth pausing here to consider because Jesus is talking to the chief priests about their opposition to him, even though he knows that it it will cost him his life, ultimately. And he's already said in chapter 8, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross and follow me. So it's worth asking ourselves, in my Christian life, am I faithful to proclaiming Jesus' death regardless of what it will cost me? Am I faithful to proclaiming Jesus' death regardless of what it will cost me? Now back to the parable. Jesus says to the chief priests that they're going to kill him. And in saying this, he chooses to quote from Psalm 118. So verse 10, haven't you read this passage of scripture? And that itself is a stern rebuke to you. (coughs) Haven't you read this passage of scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvellous in our eyes. Now the picture here is of a building site. I was on the coach into London a few weeks ago and as we were entering London, the coach drove up onto a flyover and below us on the left was this enormous building site. There were workmen and cranes. They were making these big um, apartment blocks or office blocks. It was this huge project 
And at one point there was this vast big hole in the ground. It was a big rectangular hole, it was quite deep. And here they were laying the foundations for a new building. So this psalm paints a picture of a building site. And there's a stone. There's a slab of stone which the builders have rejected and chosen to not use. It's just lying there neglected in the site. People are tripping over it and sobbing their toes on it. It's been rejected. And just as the builders reject the stone, so the tenants kill the sun, so the Israelites have Jesus crucified, so mankind's self-centred, fruitless religion rejects Jesus as king. So this stone is Jesus, and the stone has been rejected. That is, until the architect comes along, and he says, I have a whole new design. You see, the architect is going to build a whole new house, (coughs) and he chooses to use this stone as the foundation stone. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, the cornerstone was the most important stone in a house. It was the foundation stone, and it was the reference point for all the measurements and the dimensions of the house. It was the most important stone. And the stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Now, why is the rejection of the stone good news? Well, this parable shows mankind at his worst, crucifying Jesus. And yet, even this, the worst that mankind could do, was God's plan all along. Verse 11. The Lord has done this, and it is marvellous in our eyes. So we've seen so far that sin is denying God his rightful authority. It's not giving him his due, and it's opposing his son. We've seen that Jesus has come for judgment. And we've seen that Jesus has come to die. But now we see that Jesus being killed by God's people Israel was God's plan all along. And this psalm, Psalm 118, is a psalm all about salvation. I'm going to read to you some snippets from it. It's on page 616, in case you'd like to follow along. Psalm 118. Psalm 118, verse 2. Let Israel say his love endures forever. Or verse 14. The Lord is my strength and my defence. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. Verse 26. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So this is God's people together delighting in their salvation in him. And this is what Israel was supposed to say. And indeed they do give that impression. In Mark 11, verse 9, as Jesus was riding into Jerusalem, they said, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But beneath the surface, what do God's people Israel really say when Jesus appears? What they really say is, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. So hard-hearted, rebellious Israel rejects Jesus as king, And God chooses to use that rejection to build a new people for himself. Verse 9. He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. So he'll pass judgment on Israel and he'll give his kingdom to others. So God is building a new house, a new people, and its foundation is Jesus. And now the invitation is open to everyone to be in God's new people. The invitation is open to you. So that you, rather than being fearful of judgment, can say, as it says in the psalm, 
The Lord is my strength, my defence. He's become my salvation. The invitation is open to all so that anyone can become part of God's new people. And Mark has already shown us hints of this. We're back in chapter 3. In verse 6, the Pharisees began to plot how they might kill Jesus. And then straight after that, in verse 7, Jesus withdrew from them as a sign of his judgment on them. And he then went up on a mountain and he called to himself 12 men, the beginning of the new people of God. And through them, the church went on to grow. So Jesus shows us God's judgment on old Israel in order to create a new people built upon the death and resurrection of Jesus. So in God's wisdom and in his faithfulness to his own glory, God uses the very rejection of the stone to bring salvation. The disciple Peter later went on to say this. This is Acts chapter 4 verse 11. This Jesus is the stone that you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to man by which we must be saved. So it is God's master plan that through his son, his king Jesus, being rejected and killed by mankind, he would open up the invitation to all people to be in his kingdom. Now the 19th century Welsh hymn, Here is Love Vast as the Ocean, was written by William Rees and it's a hymn about the cross. Since it was written, someone else has added an additional verse onto it. And the first few verses are about Jesus shedding for us his precious blood on the Mount of Crucifixion. And the additional verse goes like this. Millions since in earth and heaven, drawing near the eternal throne, called from every tribe and nation, one exalted saviour own. In that crowded congregation, I, astonished, take my place. Cleansed and healed and by adoption, made a child of God by grace. Now we began by posing the question to different people, how do you consider yourself before God? And would God let you into his kingdom? And in this parable we've seen our need of Jesus because we see ourselves in the tenants. Because sin denies God his authority, it doesn't give God his due and it rejects Jesus. Indeed, the requirement for being in God's kingdom is to give God his due glory in everything, and that's an impossible standard for us. And so in God's justice, Jesus has come for judgment, and this judgment really is deserved. And in God's wisdom and in his mercy, it's through Jesus being rejected and killed by sinful humanity, through his death and resurrection, that God invites us to be part of his people. So being part of God's new people means... Seeing sin for what it is, recognising that judgment is deserved, seeing God's master plan and accepting the invitation. And this is what God has in store for his people. A vineyard on a fertile hillside. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. Let's pray as we close. Heavenly Father, we praise you so much for your, your wisdom shown at the cross, and we praise you so much for opening up a way for us to be part of your people, and we want to recognise and repent of the ways in which we do not give you the glory that's due to you, and Lord, we praise you for your justice in coming to judge, judge sin and your mercy 
in coming to forgive sin. Please, Lord, would we be those who, who faithfully proclaim Jesus' death, regardless of the cost to us. And we pray these things in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen.